Welcome, guys and gals, to the Man Talks podcast. I'm Connor Beaton, the host and founder of Man Talks. This podcast brings together the best thought leaders, teachers, and extraordinary individuals to help teach and mentor you on how to be a top performer in life, love, and business. The mission of Man Talks is to help develop self aware, high performing, and impactful men in the world the type of men you want to be and the type of men you want to be around. Joining me today is a close friend by the name of Saul Orwell. Saul Orwell has uh, started up a company called Examine.com quite a few years ago, which was recognized by Fast Company as one of the top 10 innovative companies in health and fitness in 2015. Before I dive into more of that, I just want to remind all the guys that are out there listening to head on over to Facebook.com forward slash Mantalks dash community and join the Mantalks community. We've got some great conversations in there from everything of health and finances to fitness, fatherhood to business and entrepreneurship. We've got some daily and weekly challenges and uh, some great conversations, resources that get shared. So I encourage you to head on over and join that community. I also want to thank each and every single one of you for tuning into this podcast. It means a lot to me. We have grown exponentially over the past few months uh, as we bring bring on and source you know bigger, better guests. Um, you guys and gals keep sharing this podcast out, and I thank you so much. So please don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, leave a review. It goes a long way in uh, helping us rank up in iTunes. And uh, don't forget to man it forward and share it with a friend. If you find value in this episode or a past episode that's really resonated with you, feel free to send it on over to someone who could benefit from listening to that podcast. So Thank you so much for helping us grow. Now, back to Mr. Saul Orwell. He's done some incredible things. And in 2015, Men's Fitness called him a game changer, uh, along with the names of Stephen Colbert and Pharrell. Uh, So he's got some really cool accolades. He's managed to build a couple different businesses from starting off in the gaming industry, where he built up a uh, six and then seven figure business, and then starting examine.com. He's now off onto a few other different ventures, which we dive into. And really, Saul has a really interesting um, perspective on entrepreneurship. And he wasn't really in it for the money. He wasn't really in it for, you know, the fancy cars or the fancy watches. In fact, here's a quote from Saul, just to give you an idea of the type of guy that that I'm going to be interviewing. I think a big part of entrepreneurship is to realize that you can trust people. You can be rewarded for trusting people. You don't have to necessarily always look over your shoulder. Another quote that uh, that he made that I found really interesting was, I don't feel like I need the $5 million house, the fancy cars, or the fancy watches. I don't begrudge anyone who wants that type of lifestyle. But for me, the main end goal of the game is to travel. That's the main thing that I focus in on. So we really dive into how to scale your company. Uh, Sol really shares some insights from how he's built his businesses because he's got, I think, seven or eight now. Uh, We dive into a couple of them specifically. He shares some insight into how he's built them, how he's scaled them rather quickly, and how he's built his life in such a way that it allows him to have the freedom that he ultimately wants to travel, spend time with his family, and raise his kids. So without further ado, I would like to bring on Mr. Sol Orwell. Thanks for having me. I'm jacked to uh, jump in today. You have had quite the history. And uh, the one thing that I'm sure that our audience cannot wait to talk about is your love and obsession with cookies, because who doesn't like cookies? Damn straight. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kick things off today just with the question that we ask every guest on the Man Talks podcast, which is tell us a story about a defining moment in your life that made you who you are today. Yeah, for sure. So there, there's two, but uh, the one that happened earlier, the one that really hit me. So I'm ethnically uh, Kashmiri, which is what Pakistan India keep fighting over, uh, born in Pakistan, and then we moved to Saudi Arabia. And my dad was a very, very, very capable mechanical engineer. Basically, every time they did a new factory, you know, they'd, they'd send a four or five man team and he would be one of the reps. And when we moved eventually to Canada, we became Canadian citizens and whatnot. Uh, my father at the time was a manager at this company. And Western citizens were allowed to be promoted as high as general manager. And he went back to the company and said, listen, you know, I, I am now a Canadian citizen. I like to be promoted. And they denied him. 
saying that you came to us as a Pakistani citizen, you will always be a Pakistani citizen to us. And, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs, they talk about, yeah, you know, I was selling candy out of my locker when I was a kid, or I was selling lemonade as a kid or whatnot. But for me, that's where I got into entrepreneurship. It was always, I need to be independent. I can't stand the thought of someone else putting me down for any reason other than what I'm capable of. And just to really underline how ferociously independent I am, I legally changed my full name because the idea that I did not get to choose my own name was just preposterous. And so I went out and I changed it. So that was kind of it. The, the, the genesis of it all was based around being independent and being able to do what I want when I want. Incredible, man. That's that's a pretty, I mean, that's a, a pretty confronting story that I think that not a lot of you know, North Americans really would have had to face, you know, unless you, you know, your family came from a different country and you're an immigrant. And I mean, it's interesting to see how that really has shaped you and made you who you are. So, so you went into, um, you went into computer engineering at the University of Toronto. Is that, did your upbringing kind of play into that and, and play into that desire to really have autonomy? Uh, so computer was more just I was just a giant nerd. You know, I like video games. I was just like shy nerd. I didn't know what I was doing. Uh, and to be honest, by then I'd already started making money and I was doing decently enough. But my parents being of that pure immigrant mindset, uh, you either become an engineer or you become a doctor. And so to get them off my back, uh, I went engineering. Uh, I went to U of T like the, I went on a full scholarship originally, but you have to keep a certain grade. You have to keep, I think, 80 percent it was. Uh, and my average the first semester was 63 percent or some something atrocious like that because I was too busy focusing on my business and stuff like that. So more than anything else, to be honest, I never really learned anything in engineering. Maybe two classes out of the entire, I don't know, 40 classes I took uh, were actually worthwhile. Uh, it was just to keep my parents happy until I truly had my independence and could do whatever I want. Nice, nice. Well, I'm just going to circle back around to the name change. What spurred on the name change to Saul Orwell? So part of it was, uh, if you read Freakonomics, right, they talk about the, the power of names. If your name is uh, uh, X or Y, you know, you're more likely to do A or B. And so to me, my original name had nothing to do with who I am. Like, I, I love my parents, but especially coming from that area of the world and coming here, you know, my name was just absolutely butchered. No one could pronounce it properly. So it almost became Americanized, at which point it just sounded ridiculous. And so basically for about a year, and a friend of mine later mentioned this, that I essentially split tested my name. Every time I'd go to a party or an event or something else, I would just choose a new name. I'd be like, hi, I'm Hank or hi, I'm Aaron or whatever the hell suited me that day. And inevitably, uh, people would find out and a circle would form and people would literally just throw names my way saying, you should try out this one, you should try out that one. And eventually, just honestly, Saul just felt uh, the easiest. It's short for Solomon, but legally it is just S-O-L. Uh, my Latin American friends make fun of me because in Latin America, it's short for Soledad, which is a female's name. And so when I go to Latin America, I have to say, me llamo Saul. But other than that, it's been uh, it's been really, really nice being able to even control something that powerful and important to yourself. Incredible. Incredible. I love it. And how did, just out of curiosity, how did your parents take the uh, name change? Uh, my mom, well, my parents are used to me doing things. So like when I got a tattoo, I knew my mom would just be like, what's wrong with you? So I called her up and I said, hey, I got a tattoo and a nose ring. And so when I showed up like a week or two weeks later, I was like stuck out my arm and my mom looked, my tattoo looks so tiny. And she slapped my hand and went, she's like, let me see your nose. And I'm like, psych, there's no nose ring. Now the tattoo doesn't seem so bad. At which point she called me an idiot and walked away. So uh, my parents are very used to just me doing these kind of things, just kind of rolling their eyes, muttering idiot, and then moving on to the next thing. Oh, man, that's so funny. I did the exact same thing to my mom when I got an eyebrow ring. And uh -huh. uh, I'm not proud. I'm not proud of it. Because you know, who the heck gets an eyebrow ring when they're like 19. But sure. I was going I was going through a phase. And so I told her that I had this big tattoo because she had found out I had a tattoo before. <laughs> and so I told her I got this like big sleeve tattoo. And she was so livid when I showed up. Uh, she saw the eyebrow ring and she unfortunately still freaked out. It was, it was pretty funny. So I, yeah. I feel you there. I mean, you just <laughs> need to know how to play your parents, right? I mean, that, I think that's an important part of upbringing is realizing how to push your parents' buttons because they've been pushing your buttons forever. Just balancing yeah, it out. Yeah. So good. Well, so, okay. So you go to University of Toronto, you have got a bunch of websites on the side or a couple of websites on the side that are focused in on gaming. Um, unpack a little bit about how you got into gaming and then how you monetize those during university. 
Yeah, for sure. So I came from Saudi Arabia to Houston, actually, originally for eighth grade. And the amount of culture shock I had was just out of this world. Like everything blew my mind. And this is pre-internet Saudi Arabia. So I went from no internet in Saudi Arabia to 14.4K internet in Houston. And everything was just culture shock. And so my refuge was basically this online game my brother actually introduced me to. And it was through this online game that, you know, I got to make some friends. I got to be me. I didn't feel awkward. Like I never had an accent. I was never bullied, but I was just definitely out of uh, my element. And so as I made these friendships in these games, I realized, hey, you know what? We're getting along really well in this video game. What about outside of this video game, right? What about some message board or hanging out? And so that's how I got into online games. I started creating these websites around online games. We did strategy and news and whatnot. And eventually I accidentally stumbled upon this where, you know, I may have 50 hours or 40 hours to get the sword of doom so I can fight the boss. But if you're a busy professional, if you're a lawyer, if you're a doctor, you don't have those 40, 50 hours. And I realized there was this market arbitrage opportunity where I would be like, hey, listen, professional, I will sell you a sword of doom for $400. And they do the math and they're like, that's $10 an hour. I'm worth way more. Let me just buy the damn sword. And then I go to some other kid like myself and I'd say, hey, listen, I'll buy the Sword of Doom for you for $10. And in their mind, the math is, holy shit, the game costs $10 a month. Now the game is free for me a month because they're already, you know, 14, 16, whatever. Let's do it. And so there's this huge uh, markup opportunity. And that's kind of how I stumbled upon it. And, and then what eventually killed it was before World of Warcraft came out, which I think was 2003, 2004, the biggest online game in North America was EverQuest with 450,000 people. And World of Warcraft peaked at 14 and a half million people, right? It literally just blew it out of the water. And so what happened was it got so big that all these other people started coming in. The margins died. All the spam started coming in. This is when Google was still kind of struggling with just buying page rank links and, and ranking at the top. Uh, and so it was just kind of time to uh, move on. And that's kind of how I got into that. That's crazy, man. So, I mean, you have a very interesting perspective because you went, you know, you went from doing that to a very different, somewhat of a different industry, which we'll get into in a second. But I'm curious to get your perspective on how the gaming industry has changed over the last 10, 15, 20 years, because guys like me grew up playing the exact games that you're talking about and, yeah. you know, playing the original Doom on your computer. And it was just right. like crappy 64 bit, you know, it just like looked all chunky and stuff. Duke Nukem and stuff like that. And so I'm curious as to get your perspective on how the gaming industry has shifted and how that's impacted a lot of teenagers today and, and moving forward. So from my, I mean, I'll admit I haven't gone, I haven't kept the, 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 the closest uh, tabs on it, but from my experience, what's, what's gone on is uh, there, there's been almost two streams. One, a few of the more popular online games have basically been buy it for once and then play it for life. So games like Guild Wars, Guild Wars 2, it's like 60, 70, 80 bucks to buy the game. Uh, and then you don't need to continue paying. The other thing what also happened is uh, some of these gaming companies got into selling the virtual currency themselves, which makes sense, right? Like I may have had a $10, $20, whatever cost to acquire. They have a literally, you know, one one millionth of a cent to generate, to switch a few bytes on the servers to say, you suddenly got this money. And the other thing that's definitely happened is back when I first started, there was a lot more, let's say, small independent online games. And they still kind of exist, but just like movies have become a little bit more safer and safer and a little bit more, let's say, algorithmic and a little bit more formulaic, uh, video games are the same thing, right? Game launches now are on par with movie launches, right? When Call of Duty comes out, making 100 or $200 million in sales in the first weekend is not that unheard of. And when you're making that much money, a little bit of creativity kind of gets stifled. So uh, it's kind of interesting where occasionally you'll still have this oddball game come out, but I would say it's a lot less uh, common. And to really kind of hammer it home, there's this game called Zack and Wiki for the Nintendo Wii uh, that came out like 10, 11, nine years ago. And my woman and I have been playing it recently, and it's a ton of fun and had great reviews, but it didn't sell. And so those kind of games died out. And it's like this weird puzzle kind of game. So uh, I think just like the movie industry or almost anything else that becomes incredibly mainstream, uh, there's a level of formulaicness that uh, enters that marketplace. Very cool. So just out of curiosity, how, how do you see things like augmented reality and virtual reality really shifting the gaming landscape? Like what's that going to do for 
us in terms of engagement and how much people are actually playing games? Do you think that it's going to accelerate usage and, and open it up to a wider age range? Or is it going to still be for that specific subset of demographic of, of, of people that are usually playing? Uh, you know what? I, I think it could be both ways. Because I think it's augmented reality or, or VR in itself is not just about games, even right? So, for example, they're talking about how, you know, being in nature is really good for your mental state. And so they're developing VR, which lets bedridden patients go into uh, a VR world, right? And then let's say you introduce their grandkids into this VR world. And let's say you add gamification components or even that you can play, let's say, checkers in VR. So is this now video gaming, right? Or is it hanging out with your family? So I think those lines are about to get blurred. And it's kind of going to be interesting to see if people get lost in it, or if it e even spurs people on more to experience the real world, right? You see, let's say, uh, a glacier in Argentina, you see it in VR, and you're like, this looks really amazing. I'm now uh, spurred on to go visit it. It's almost like Instagram is helping restaurants, it's helping tourism because it's exposing people to things they didn't know existed. And so now they're getting off their asses and actually going to experience it. So, you know, VR could be a positive that way, or it could be like the upcoming uh, Ready Player One that Spielberg is producing and just kind of everyone gets sucked into this VR world and never leaves it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's really interesting because in, in like Japanese animation, there's a bunch of shows like Sword Art Online that all like really tackle this subject of advanced VR and advanced augmented reality where, where people just end up living out their lives on there. And, you know, you have people like Elon Musk who basically say like, you know, once we've created a virtual reality that's indistinguishable from our current reality, there's really not much of a chance that we're the base reality, you know, that, yeah. that, that we're the original reality that's creating VR. And so it like brings in all of these sort of existential philosophical questions as well, which is really like unexpected when you think about video games. You didn't like I never thought as a kid that I would be having existential conversations because of video games. You know, it's it's really interesting. hundred percent. I, I will say, uh, you know, back in the day uh, when uh, Voodoo 3D came out as a you know dedicated graphics card, because at the time, mostly it was just integrated stuff. You kind of saw the specialization into graphics, into AI starting to come in. Even like now, computers are specifically made for uh, mining Bitcoin and stuff like that. So I, I think we kind of had the breadcrumbs looking in hindsight. Uh, and it's interesting to see how it's going to all unravel in the next 10 to 20 years. Because if Moore's Law holds and with quantum computing and all that coming in, Moore's Law should hold. Uh, it's going to be kind of stunning what uh, we're able to generate. Very cool. Even, Very uh, cool, even, even if I can, uh, so I get on one last thing. I was reading about how they did Planet of the Apes. Uh, I forgot which company it was. Uh, but originally what they did uh, when they had previously done a forest, they had made six base trees and they had duplicated it. And voila, there was a landscape. But, you know, you could subconsciously tell that it was a duplicated landscape. And so now this time what they did was they made unique leaves. And then duplicated across the landscape on these trees. And now you could no longer tell that they're unique, uh, that there was like a base template was used to make all these trees. So it's really, really fascinating how far they're going and how like these trickery uh, and going more to a base level where instead of an entire tree, now they're looking at leaves, uh, you know, how much more advanced they're getting slowly but surely. Wow, that is that is pretty incredible. I love that fun fact. I did not know that. Now when I go see Planet of the Apes, I'm going to yeah. be staring at the trees. For sure. <laughs> um, okay. Okay. So then, so then your life takes a little bit of a, a little bit of a left turn and you and, and another guy started up something called examine.com. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about this shift because this, this is now into, you know, the health, nutrition, supplementation industry and is a very uh, sort of far, not far removed, but it's, it's definitely away from the, the gaming industry and what you were yeah. doing before that from, from my perspective. So what led you to want to do this? Uh, so a little bit of uh, introduce. So actually, after virtual currency, I did a lot of other things. Uh, some were miserable failures. Some were acceptable successes. The one that really went well is local search. And just like I got into virtual currency or and online games because you know it was my refuge. Local search, and this is like two thousand four five, right around when Google Maps came out and Yelp and whatnot. I just moved into a new neighborhood. There was no idea, there was no way to find out what businesses were in the area. And so I just did it on foot manually. And so I got into local search and that did really well. And going back to my original statement of independence, uh, I had achieved, let's say, financial freedom. Uh, by no means was I wealthy or super well off, but my life is relatively simple. And so I basically retired. 
And uh, for five years, I gallivanted around the States in Argentina. And when I came back to Toronto, I, I gained a lot of weight. Like I was always kind of a chunky kid, but I tore my ACL and I just gotten really, really heavy. And as I lost weight, I got suckered into buying all these supplements and whatnot. And I'll send you that picture. It was just a ridiculous amount of supplements. And I realized, whoa, these supplement companies are ripping us off. And going back to my basic ethos, which is like, just find the like frustration and there's your opportunity right there. I recruited my co-founder. He was going to go do his PhD in nutrition. I said, listen, we have an opportunity to do something really cool. Come join me. Let's do this. And that's kind of how I got into the health space. And one of the, the key parts is I've always been very conscious about what I'm good at. I'm good at, let's say, setting this up. I'm good at customer service and development and blah, blah, blah. But the all the research was done by him. I never read a single paper. I mean, obviously, I have just out of my own interest, but I've never read a single paper and put it on examine.com because that's not my expertise. I think too many people get lost in that. They think they're the experts in everything, whereas I try to stay in my lane and then recruit people who are far smarter than I am at their specific things and then let them have at it. Nice. Okay, cool. So so with, with examine, like, what was your hope in terms of the end goal? Because it was really interesting like seeing your progression as you, you know, went into starting this company and you really like, I mean, you're in really great shape now, despite the copious amounts of cookies that you say you eat, yeah. um, <laughs> <laughs> which I love, by the way, I'm like the, I'm like the popcorn monster. If, oh. if you're the cookie monster, I'm the popcorn monster. I just, I can't help myself. Awesome. But so as you went through this, as you went through this experience, it definitely looks like it transformed you sort of from the inside out. And what was your intention with examine.com? Like what, what were you hoping to accomplish long-term uh, in terms of impact in people's lives? Honestly, all I wanted to do was screw with supplement companies. That was it. I was hella mad that I'd spent a couple thousand dollars on these supplements that don't do anything for me uh, and how they're misrepresenting it. So the easy example always is glutamine. It is an amino acid protein and it is sold as a muscle builder. And it says, hey, you know what? Studies show that taking glutamine makes your muscles 300% bigger, which is crazy if you even think about it, right? Take all the muscle mass you have right now and expand it by 300%. That's insane. But what actually happened was if you take muscle cell, tissue cells and you put them in a Petri dish and you inject them with glutamine, voila, they grow. But in the actual human body, when you ingest glutamine, the small intestines actually sequester it for themselves. So glutamine is actually really good if you have like IBS or intestinal distress or anything like that. But that glutamine never actually gets to your muscle cells. And if it's never getting your muscle cells, it's never going to make them bigger, right? So it was this kind of blatant, non-contextual uh, misrepresentation that just really, really peeved me off. You know, if you'll ever meet me, you'll see that I just fly into these tantrum rants and whatnot or injustices that I've experienced. <laughs> I was like, all right, I'm going to take care of this one. We're going to do something about it. And so actually, when we started examine.com, we were only doing like bodybuilding kind of supplements. And then we expanded into fitness and then general health and then nutrition analysis and all that kind of stuff. But really off the bat, I just wanted to, to mess with them. And I believe we successfully have done that. Nice. Nice, man. Okay, cool. So so let's dive into the supplements a little bit. Maybe maybe not so much like the supplement industry, but just in terms of from a health perspective, because I think, you know, there's a our audience is predominantly men. We do have like a lot of couples and a lot of women that, that dive into this as well. But I think for a lot of guys, I definitely grew up in the age of like creatine. And that was pretty much like the main supplement or like some whey protein or something like that. Yeah. And, and there wasn't there wasn't really it wasn't really a big trend when I was younger, like in high school. Um, but now Ooh. supplements are a huge, huge industry. And they've they've really kind of blown up. And there are a lot of things out there that when guys are trying to lose weight, or if they're trying to put on muscle mass, you know, there's so much to actually look at. And so I would love to because you've actually been through this journey, just kind of talk about first and foremost, what supplements and what routines can can guys look at for weight loss, and then look at the same thing for muscle building. So let's just start with the weight loss. What do you recommend for guys that are trying to cut down, maybe trying to lose a little bit of weight? What supplements should they pair with those types of things? What should they look at and consider, you know, are things like fasting and high, you know, high uh, saturated fat diets, mm -hmm. um, you know, things like Bulletproof are those are those things that you would recommend? So let's just start in that area. What What's what's some of your insight on that? For sure. So for fat loss, uh, it's a little bit counterintuitive. No matter what anyone may claim or may say, uh, usually they're selling you something else 
calories in and calories out are your God. Uh, they are the barometer of everything. Now, we can argue that, you know, maybe if you're on a high fat diet, you know, you may have less, uh, you may be more active or you may be slightly less active and all that kind of stuff. But in every study where they've ever analyzed complete nutritional uh, intake, because most studies are actually self-reported, which are notorious, notorious for misrepresentation, every single one where they've actually controlled it, calories are the most important thing. So with that as our baseline, the secondary part, and this is slightly counterintuitive to people, is when you're losing weight, you actually want to be ingesting a relatively high amount of protein. And the reason for that is basically your body at all times is either building, is, is both building, let's say, tissue and burning tissue. Uh, and burning tissue includes uh, fatty acids, which are essentially, you know, which is fat in your body, which is energy that they're trying to extract from you. And so when you are in a caloric deficit, your body is obviously burning more than it is ingesting and therefore able to build. And so while it's burning it, you need to give it sufficient protein slash amino acids so it's not burning uh, muscle mass. Any bodybuilder beyond, let's say, when you're in a newbie status, any bodybuilder, we're talking about from Mr. Olympia to someone doing it casually, when you diet, when you lean out, you will lose some muscle mass. This always happens. And people are obsessed about like, no, 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 I want to build more muscle when I'm losing weight. It's essentially formulaically impossible unless obviously you're a newbie. So that's kind of the baseline. Uh, in terms of supplements that help, I mean, creatine, it works. Basically, it just gives you a little bit of extra energy in your body. Uh, if you remember your biology, it gives you a little bit more phosphates for adenosine triphosphate, which is ATP, which is the base energy molecule you have. Uh, and so it gives you more phosphates to donate to ADP to make it to ATP, which is sounds very complicated, but it's actually not. Uh, so creatine works. Protein works. Other than that, to be honest, I mean, caffeine works. If you're naive to ca caffeine, which means you've been ingesting too much, it might not work as efficiently. Ephedrine works. It's banned in the U.S. Uh, I mean, it's only sold as bronchate in the U.S. It's available in Canada. But pretty much everything else, be it from green tea to conjugated linoleic acid to, you know, astaxanthin to everything else in between is garbage. Or, or I mean... It's to the level of 1%. It takes your tank from 41 miles per gallon to 42 miles per gallon. It doesn't matter. What really, really matters that most people screw up on is sleep. Because sleep is then connected to your willpower. It's connected to your ability to resist foods. Now, this fasting work that you mentioned, sure, I do. I've been doing IF now for six, seven years. It works. But do you need to IF? Absolutely not. Some people find it easier to eat less if they have multiple meals a day. Some people find it easier if you have a few meals a day. Some people find it easier to have a lot of fat and low carb to lose uh, weight. Other people find it easier if you have high carb and low fat. I mean, the problem is all these guys and gals, I guess, are selling you this magic theory that's going to solve it. You know, oh, you're having too much sugar. or Oh, you're having too much fat. Or, oh, you need to have more fat or low fat, blah, 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 blah. None of these people are researchers, and there's a reason why they're not, is because they're selling you a story. And it works for some people, but it doesn't work for everybody. High-fat diet, I've done it, a ketogenic diet, I've done it for six months. It was miserable for me. I am leaner and feeling better and stronger ingesting copious amounts of carbohydrates and sugars. And that might not be true for you or for someone else, and that's something you need to figure out. So going back to fat loss, to sum it up, you need to be in a deficit of calories. You need to ingest ample protein so your body has enough amino acids. And then you need to figure out which kind of diet and lifestyle works for you. That's that's the real gist of it is that it's consistency. If you're, if you're in decreasing your caloric intake by a total of 300 calories a day, be it high fat, be it low fat, if you're doing it consistently, you will look leaner. You will lose fat. And, you know, as a consequence, you'll feel better. Your joints will be so tired out and so forth and so forth. I love it. I love it. That's some great insight. I, I really appreciate the perspective around, you know, this is what has worked for me and that might not work for everybody. And I think that that's such, that's such an important caveat, you know, and I, I think that it, it can be shared by somebody like you because, you know, you're, you're not trying to plug some 
you know, fitness or, or nutrition yep. program to get people, you know, to sign up to. And so, uh, th- and that's, that's what I've always tried to do is find people that have a very like neutral stance on it because it's, it's nice to get that reality check sometimes rather than the programmatic dogmatic. Here's exactly what you should be doing, you know, follow X, Y, and Z, um, which is what a lot of people are looking for. Yeah. I mean, they want it, but the, the problem with it is that it's not something you can stay with. Right. Like I lost my weight seven years ago, let's say the majority of it. And it's been seven years. And sometimes, you know, I'll gain a little bit of weight and stuff like that. But how many people are able to keep off their weight for 10 years? That's the goal, right? It's not to look good in three months from today. I mean, sure, that might be the ancillary goal or the original goal. But the real target anyone should have is how do I look good in a year, in five years, in 10 years, in 20 years, when I have kids, when I'm stressed out, when, you know, whatever happens, if I have surgery, uh, if you're female, if I'm going through menopause, those are uh, the consistent things. And, and kind of tying into that one last thing too is, you know, people would do a detox or a cleanse or a juice fast and they're like, oh, I feel great. You know, it's been one weekend or two weeks in, they feel great. And then obviously one month later they crash. And the reality wasn't that you went on this cleanse or detox or whatever. The reality was you were not eating enough veggies or, or fiber or fruits before and now you are. And obviously you feel better when your original diet was a double cheeseburger with, you know, extra bacon and now you're not ingesting it. Obviously you'll feel better. It's not the detox, it's not the cleanse. It's that you were eating only garbage before, and now that you have veggies in your life, you feel much better. But obviously, you know, a juice fast and whatever is not uh, something you consistently do for years at a time. Yeah, I, I like that. I mean, it's interesting because I went through, um, I, I don't think I've ever talked about it in the podcast, but like in my early 20s, I was, I, you know, I was working construction and I was going to the gym like four or five days a week and I was a really big dude, but I was also a little bit overweight. Like I I was pretty jacked, but I had this big gut. And so I was like 245 pounds and I'm, I'm like six, one, six, two. Mm-hmm. And right now I'm like, I'm under 200 pounds. So I was mm-hmm. 40, 40 to 45 pounds heavier. Yeah. And the, the journey of that was simply shifting my eating habits because I was eating at like Wendy's and McDonald's and like the, you know, the really like crappiest yep. of the crap places. And literally just by shifting to throwing in a salad for lunch and, and just like shifting my eating habits, I didn't, I didn't change anything else because I was already, you know, pretty physically active. I was working out quite a bit. I didn't shift anything except for, you know, include a bunch of vegetables and and salad and, and, you know, cut out the chocolate bar that I would have with lunch every single day. Jersey milk, by the way, is like my kryptonite. I just can't, <laughs> I can't, I don't even like, if I see it in a grocery store, I just quickly look away, you know, I just like, I don't want to see it. Um, but, (laughs) but I started noticing like these trigger points and shifting that diet. And over the course of two months, cut back on the 45 pounds. And since then, and that was, that was probably 10 years ago, have remained around the same weight, you know, fluctuating within five pounds here and there, depending on, on, on how it goes. But that, that shift in the eating habits, I think is the biggest component uh, of what we're talking about. So, so let's switch over to putting on muscle mass, because obviously that's, that's a big thing that a lot of guys looking for, you know, they want to lean down or they want to put on some muscle mass fairly quickly. What are some of the core things that we need to know from a nutritional standpoint? And then do you have any insight uh, from a fitness, uh, fitness routine standpoint? Yeah. So going back to that, again, you need protein, Uh, you obviously don't need as much anymore, because again, you're not uh, usually in a deficit if you're trying to build muscle. Again, it goes back to sleep and recovery. Studies have shown that, you know, when you do, uh, when you lift weight, let's say you do the bench press, the peak MPS muscle protein synthesis actually happens 24 hours after. And it's while you're sleeping and you're getting your recovery on is when the muscle building is actually going on. So far too many people, again, Number like we we have people obviously we, we get about like seventy five thousand people a day. We have people asking us all the time, what supplements should I take? What supplements should I take? And the number one answer we always have is, are you sleeping enough? And inevitably the answer is no. At which point we're just like get lost because you're wasting everyone's time. So going back to that, you need to get ample sleep. Afterwards, in terms of building muscle, to be honest, it goes back to being consistent. You could do something like starting strength, which is just obsessed with squats, and you will become stronger and more muscular. And the other like kind of the extension of that is the problem is for most people at the gym, they actually just give up too easily. If they're aiming for 10 reps and they do nine reps and they're like, I'm really friggin' tired. I don't have it in me to do the 10th rep. They fail that and they have it in themselves and they just don't exert themselves. 
when I talk to coaches who've been at this for 20 plus years, the number one complaint they have is that people don't put in the effort. Lifting weights to build muscle is not meant to be easy. It's not meant to be afterwards you high five everyone and be like, yeah, I kicked ass. Maybe 30 minutes afterwards, like you shouldn't be killed an hour later. But far too many people, they take it way too easily. They take it way too soft, which is why a lot of people do well with uh, training partners, because that other person is their motivation, is the one saying, keep going, keep going, keep going. Beyond that, honestly, working out from three times a week to five times a week to six times a week to doing daily undulating programming to doing upper, lower, push, pull, all that is relatively inconsequential. If you do 100 workouts a year, that's better than 75 of the most strategically planned workouts you can ever, ever get. And so incorporating that other part is people just think, oh, I lifted weights, I'm going to be healthy. But really what it's about is being active. And that includes walking around. And so we can even get into walking being great for, you know, mental recovery and emotional stability and all that kind of stuff. But it's not just about going to the gym, lifting some heavy weights, feeling good, getting the endorphin rush, getting that pump and then leaving. You need to be active in your life. And so, for example, for me, one of the ways I make sure I walk is every day I have a morning walk of 2,000, roughly 2,000 steps. There's a Taco Bell. I walk, you know, like 50 meters past it. And then I walk back like this circuit that I do. And that ensures that at a minimum every day, I'm getting 2,000 steps a day. And then at the end of my work or my work day, I put on REM's losing my religion. And then I go for another similar (laughs) walk. And so no matter what happens, pretty much every single day of the week, I'm getting my 4,000 steps, which doesn't sound like a lot, but it's not that hard to go a day where you're just kind of, you know, being lazing around and kind of being uh, a little bit of a vegetable, which is fine. Everyone needs those. This way, I ensure that pretty much I get 5K steps a day, no matter what. So I think that's really what it's about. People think, oh, you just go to the gym and you lift weights. It's more than just that. And yeah, you know what? If you want bigger biceps, hit up them biceps. I will tell you one thing, though. If you want bigger arms, you got to hit up them triceps. Triceps are twice the size of your biceps physically, structure-wise, in your in your upper arm. Hit those triceps. Your arms look way more impressive. Hit the reverse delts. You get the 3D shoulder effect, and it looks way more impressive. But other than that, honestly, man, consistency and actually exerting in the effort are far more important than everything else. Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, I mean, I can just just to emulate what you're saying, because I went through a, a period where I, we did this challenge in the man talks community. And it's like this, this group that we have on Facebook, and I put it out a, a physical fitness challenge to the, all the guys that are in there. And for 30 days, I did 100 burpees a day. And I didn't really do much of anything else, you know, like I did a little bit of running here and there. But after the 30 days, I was in incredible shape by just doing 100 burpees every single day consistently for 30 days. And that's something that's really stuck with me. So like, you know, on the days that maybe I can't hit up the gym or something like that, I'll just try and, you know, plug in like 60 burpees or something like that. And it's such a great way to break up the day. You know, if you're working, you do like 20 burpees and you go sit back down, fire off like five minutes of work, go do like another 20 burpees, sit down, fire off another minute of work, you know, and, and kind of and kind of mix it up. That consistency piece that you're talking about really is the biggest part. And I think that, you know, if, if there's people out there that are wanting to, whether it's lose mass or gain mass, that consistency piece is, is definitely instrumental. 100%. We're, we're, we just live a very sedentary life, right? Like the problem with sitting isn't sitting in itself, is that we sit for four hours in a row. So even if you get up every hour, set an alarm for every hour, you get up, even if you do like 10 burpees, just getting off that position, it helps your joints, it makes you feel so much better. And so everyone... I mean, the problem is, you know, when people get motivated to lose weight or to feel better, they go ham, right? They will work out seven days a week and they're walking 20,000 steps a day and they're just, they just go bananas. And then three weeks in, they're so beat up, so tired, their motivation is lost. And they're like, I've, I've earned this. Let me go eat two, you know, platters of nachos. So really, again, like if we think about anything that we've done consistently successful, it's like little baby steps. And then we go from there. When I started losing weight, all I did was I walked 10,000 steps a day. I bought a pedometer. I stuck it on the side of my belt. 10,000 steps a day, that was it. And I didn't try to like, maybe I lift the weights here and there. I didn't try to do eat healthy or anything like that. I just did that one baby step. And once I got that one down, boom, on to the next thing and on to the next thing, on to the next thing. And then it doesn't seem so bad, right? You look at your previous life and you're like, man, I used to eat an entire box of Oreos. Like, Oreos are disgusting. What is wrong with me? Much less an entire box. (laughs) It's just one of those slow transitions, not, you know, let's do all of it today. 
and be Superman tomorrow. Mm, doesn't work that way, unfortunately. What about the double stuffed Oreos? I mean, those are pretty good. <laughs> uh, they're pretty solid, but I like my viewpoint now, to be honest, on treats is let's say I'm about to throw 500 calories into, you know, cookies or whatever. I would rather spend the money and get some really good shit and savor it than be like, man, I got to dunk these Oreos in milk or double stuffed. It's not bad, but I would rather really get my calories worth of deliciousness. That's kind of how I do it. <laughs> So good. So good. So just to kind of like cap off on this, on this note, before we move on, because uh, we have one more thing that, that I definitely want to dive into. Do you recommend like when you were going through the process of losing the weight and putting on the muscle and that kind of stuff, did you have any sort of reward or incentivization for yourself? You know, a lot of people talk about celebrating your goals, celebrating your markers. Is that something that's within your personal philosophy or uh, how, did, how did you incentivize yourself to lose the weight? Dude, I, I enjoyed myself. Part of it was, so people too oftentimes, they, they make that incentive something food. And instead, I tried to make it something more uh, fun. So one of them was my buddies and I, we went to Scotland. Uh, and there's Ben Nevis, which is like the tallest mountain slash really a hill uh, in Scotland. And we're like, we're going to climb that. That was our thing. And it was like a two, three hour hike. It wasn't anything like super stupend, uh, amazing. But that was like my roar. Like, oh, I've lost these 15 pounds. I've earned the ability to go see if I can climb. It. And it was exhausting. It was brutal. I just had ACL surgery, I think, three months before or two months before. It wasn't easy. But that was my motivation. Uh, separately, though, I do. I, I've always believed in enjoying food. The food is fuel thing is ridiculous to me. We've always bonded over food. What is this food is fuel garbage? And so going back to what you mentioned, cookies, part of my reward, if you wish, was I set aside the calories for cookies and I have my calories. cookies. So if my goal was, let's say, 1800 calories for the day, and I mean, rough like, and I knew these two cookies were 300 calories, I knew that was me keeping my balance, enjoying something delicious, realizing I might be a little bit hungrier because, you know, I those cookies are not as filling as anything else, but it kept me from binging, right, people? Uh, I was talking to someone yesterday and she was talking about how uh, she had like six days on, seven days, the seventh day is off and people just lose their mind, right? You say it's a cheat day and people are like, yeah, and they have like two foot long hot dogs and the nachos and then they're just drizzling butter into their mouth and you're like, wow, you've destroyed your previous week's progress and set yourself back a week. And so uh, one thing that one of my friends who coaches he came up with was instead he said for your seventh day, your cheat day, whatever, he phrased it as treat yourself. And the idea was you treat yourself to one thing and not 17 different things that you're just shoving down your gullet. And he found that worked really efficiently. So again, really, it comes down to what kind of person you are. Uh, people try to sell the perfect solution. There is no perfect solution for me. It was having a few cookies every day worked better. For other people, having something a little bit more ridiculous once a week works better for them. Uh, and that's kind of how we, uh, how I, sorry, how I made it work. Nice. Nice. I like it. I, I, and I like a few cookies every day. That's, <laughs> that seems like a pretty damn good compromise that to me. The spot, yeah. yeah. So, so one of the things that I was really curious to talk to you about is, is philanthropy. You've had a, quite a few successful companies and, you know, you've been featured in fast company, you've been featured in men's health and you've, you've, you've really built up a really great portfolio of businesses over the years, which is hard for a lot of entrepreneurs to do. And one of the things that that I've noticed about you is that you have a, a pretty specific viewpoint on philanthropy, and you've really been doing philanthropy for quite a few years now. Mm -hmm. And so I was hoping that you can unpack maybe the not redefining of philanthropy, but how people, entrepreneurs can get started in philanthropy where they are right now today. Yeah. So just a little bit of background information. Since we talked about virtual gaming and all that kind of stuff, it's been 18 years since I got into being an entrepreneur. And building the quote unquote personal brand is only something I've done in the past few years. And part of the reason is you talk to an entrepreneur and you say, hey, you know, like what's philanthropy to you? And oftentimes, first of all, they won't even define philanthropy. They'll define philanthropist. They'll say Bill Gates or Warren Buffett, but they won't actually define what the act is. And when you get a little bit deeper into it, their idea of philanthropy is I'm going to sell my company for $100 million and I'm going to cut checks for $100,000 or a million dollars and my name's going to be on this building, my name's going to be on that building. They have grand dreams, which is nice, which is important. The problem is 
a lot more entrepreneurs today are, let's say, lifestyle entrepreneurs. Someone like me, like I do well enough, but I will never sell my company for a hundred million or maybe who knows, but likely it's, it's very unlikely to happen. But I can afford to give a thousand dollars a month and not feel like I have in any way sacrificed anything. I know people that, you know, they can afford to give five thousand dollars a year and not feel like they have sacrificed anything. So the big thing now is how do you bring philanthropy to this to these entrepreneurs so that they feel like it's something that they're doing? And the reality is, as an entrepreneur, you have a million things on your priority list. And literally at the bottom is figure out a event to give to or a charity to give to and then move on. And so one of the things I've started doing is it's important as an entrepreneur to network. And it's not just important to have your tribe that you can gripe about your employer or HR or legal or whatnot. But it's important to build up your network for exposure to new ideas and opportunities and whatnot. And I've been doing dinners and I've been meeting people over cookies for literally now, I think, four or five years in Toronto. Uh, I've been doing dinners for a couple of years. And eventually what I realized is you can just incorporate them together. So what I started doing is these dinners, instead of, let's say, having $75, which covers all the food and, and the rental space and whatnot, maybe I charge $150, $175. And that extra $100 then goes to a charity. And it's one of those things where you can find these little, little niches, if you wish, those little opportunities where you can give money. And I think it's more and more important for us entrepreneurs to do so, where it's not just something that you do when you reach an end goal, but it's something that's a part of your persona, that's part of your characteristic. Because for better or for worse, and I'm realizing this more and more and more, people watch. Uh, people who have any level of public persona, other people are watching you. Maybe 2% of the people will actually say anything to you, but the rest are all watching. And if you're setting this precedent of charity is important or appreciating where we're coming from is important, or hey, listen, I didn't build everything myself. I had society in this position to build all these things I've built. People become a lot more aware of it and they're a lot more open to it and a lot more receptive to it. And they're more, a lot more likely to do something about it. And I think it's truly a shame that very, very few entrepreneurs talk about philanthropy, talk about charity. Uh, and I think it behooves a lot of us to do so. And not just even as an entrepreneur, as a man, as, as an immigrant. Like all my relatives are in Pakistan and India. They're way smarter than I am. They're way more strategic than I am. They're way more savvy than I am. They work way harder than I do. And yet here I am, 100x more successful they are because I had the opportunity to come here. And I think it's very, very important for us to be cognizant of that uh, and hopefully, you know, contribute to a situation where other people can also be pulled up by our assistance. So that that's my little thing is uh, philanthropy is not just money. It can be mentorship. It can be even uh, introducing someone who needs help or who needs a mentor to someone else who can help them. Even that, just helping people up, I think it's it's important to have that as a prime characteristic of, of who we are. Yeah, I, I love that. I love that, man, because like really what you're talking about is start where you are. And I think for so many guys, you know, like we've 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 got this performance group it's called the performance mastermind and we you know have business owners from around north america and you know a lot of them are running multi-million dollar companies and one of the things that that we've really you know seen that i've really seen is that oftentimes these guys build up that business to the point where it's making millions and millions of dollars but they haven't started to give back yet and they always every single time feel like something's missing and the missing piece is the giving back and, you know, they just like really got stuck in, I don't know how to give back. I don't know how to like, you know, start giving back in this moment. So, you know, they, so they struggle, you know, they, they struggle to, cause they feel like something's missing inherently. 100%. And so, you know, I love this idea that whether you're running a mom and pop coffee shop and, you know, it's not maybe making millions of dollars or you are running the million dollar company, you could start where you are. And maybe it's just about finding a local entrepreneur that you can go and contribute to and mentor, you know, maybe it's a thousand dollars a month to support an upcoming venture, et cetera, et cetera. I, I really, I really appreciate that perspective. I, I just think, and, and more than anything else, it gives you a sense of community and a sense of uh, belonging. Uh, my recent, so I do these charity food offs. My most recent one was sausages. And partly why I did the sausages was because no one was excited for sausages. And I was like, let's do this. So we had 100 people come. Everyone had to buy a ticket for 100 bucks. I literally gave 100% of that to charity. We had $10,000 check. Uh, 21 people flew in for this event. Like the community building, the networking, and the sense of there's more to it than just us or just me, 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 me. 
it was palpable through the room. And and just that feeling like the shit eating grin I had on my face the entire night, it made it worth it beyond any money we raised or anything like that. So I think like people think philanthropy is also just this one thing you do on the side. I think you can incorporate into your hobbies, into your habits, into even your connections. I have a friend keep forgetting the name of it. There's this um, like race or not really a race, like a drive they do uh, every other year, I think, where these rich people bring in their supercars. Like these are cars worth a million bucks and they drive like in, in a kind of like a procession. And I was like, listen, what if we can auction off one of the seats with someone in someone's friggin' million dollar car to some entrepreneur that we know and then use that money we we raise to donate to a charity and he's like absolutely so it's this kind of stuff people always think you have to be the one throwing out money or you need to be the one putting down money but there's so many opportunities where people you know you can leverage your skills your connections your abilities anything to be able to make i would like to think in a bit of a corny way the world a better place I like it. I like it. Whether it's corny or not, I think, you know, what you're talking about is is really awesome and it's tangible. We're going to wrap up here. Unfortunately, I feel like we could talk for hours. My last couple of questions are are going to be a, a little bit shorter. First and foremost, what's your favorite type of cookie? Oh, definitely chocolate chip cookie by a mile. It's uh, it's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> do you have a specific brand? Like, do you make them at home? Where do you procure these chocolate chip cookies? So the best chocolate chip cookies I've ever had are in Toronto at a cafe called Le Grimond Cafe. Uh, I have had all the famous New York ones. I lived in New York, but I've had all the famous New York ones. I've had the famous San Fran ones. I've had, there's this one bicyclist who's had thousands of people, like professional bicyclists, who's had thousands of people give him cookies. I've tried the ones he's recommended to me, but this one in Canada, in Toronto, blows all of them away by a mile. In fact, I'm thinking of maybe doing a cookie off in November in New York, and he will be flying down to New York to have his cookies compared with the others. And I, even though I have obviously no real uh, like incentive behind it, I feel very strongly that he will kick ass and take names. <laughs> That's amazing because like immediately what came to my mind is there's a place in New York called Culture uh, Culture Coffee or Culture Espresso, yeah. and they have these chocolate chip cookies that are phenomenal. Yeah. So uh, I've had the culture ones. I've had Levain, Untitled, Schmackeries. I have done New York in a cookie kind of <laughs> tour. Uh, like we do like this ice cream gelato crawl in, in Toronto every year. I've done a cookie equivalent of that by myself in New York. Really good, really delicious, like wow cookies, but not as good as this one in Toronto. I love it. I love it, man. Um, cool. So what do you have on the horizon up and coming that you're excited about that, uh, you know, whether it's through business or philanthropy, but that maybe people can get involved with? Uh, I honestly have no idea. I, that's, that's my honest truth. Uh, I know that the next niche, let's say I'll be entering is the pet space. I bought pet.org uh, a few, even maybe a year ago now, but I haven't felt the itch yet. Examine.com is run by its own team. I am writing once every few weeks on sjo.com, which was my goal for this year, was just to write more frequently. Uh, and other than that, I'm in a happy spot where I am comfortable with being in my ambiguity and we'll figure it out whenever something really hits me that I want to go uh, deep on it. I love it. Awesome, brother. Well, thank you so much for being on the Man Talks podcast. Uh, for everybody else out there, don't forget to go to mantalks.com and check out the latest blog posts, podcasts, and videos from our live event. You'll also notice that we we just revamped the website uh, about a month ago. And so we've got a whole new fresh look on there. Uh, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, share the podcast with a friend if you found this valuable and leave us a review because it goes a long way. Until next week, this is Connor Beaton signing off.